Let's pray as Graham comes and brings us God's word. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the living word, the Bible, inspired by your spirit. And as we open its holy pages, Holy Spirit, will you speak into our hearts? Will you anoint Graham? Will he be your mouthpiece so that we hear from heaven in these next moments? Come, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit and speak into our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give Graham a warm welcome as he opens God's Word. He's gone and prayed now, and I'm about to tell a joke. <laughs> Am I allowed to do that, Paul? Is that okay? No pressure. I should tell you, first of all, that um, I put a key in the car this morning, turned the key, and the flipping car did not start. Thank you for bailing me out yesterday, Drew, wherever you were, but it didn't start again this morning. So I did the noble thing. I abandoned my family got the bus and got here on time and I think my wife and kids arrived safely a little bit later so I think Paul said the intercession guys were praying for us all uh, so thank you for doing that we may not have made it without you uh, but we're here anyway three men died <laughs> good start to a joke on Christmas Eve and were met by St. Peter at the pearly gates this is not a true story this is not how it happens but bear with me St. Peter says to the three men, in honor of this holy season, you must each have on your person one thing that represents Christmas. And so he turned to the first man and the man kind of rummaged in his pockets and he pulled out a lighter and he clicked the lighter on and he said, a candle. And St. Peter kind of looked and said, well, okay, I guess so. So he, he led him into heaven. And then he turned to the second guy and uh, the guy again rummaged in his pockets and he pulled out a set of keys and he jingled them and he said, bells? Uh, and St. Peter kind of looked a little bit funny but said, okay, I guess that'll do. And he let him into heaven. And then the third guy, he turns to the third guy and the guy pulls out of his pocket a pair of ladies' glasses. And St. Peter looked at him and says, uh, excuse me, just what exactly is that supposed to represent? And the guy said to him, uh, they're carols. It's possibly only going to get worse later in the message. So what is Christmas all about? Uh, if you were asked, as these men were, to sum up Christmas, what would you say? It's increasingly hard in our kind of westernized culture with all of the hustle and the bustle and office parties and tree decorating and present buying and last minute deadlines to keep a real clear view of and vision of in our minds what Christmas is all about. Maybe even if you're a Christian here or you know the, the biblical story well, maybe all of the various aspects of that slightly overwhelm and confuse you. The shepherds, the stars, the angels, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh, whatever that is. And where I come from, a myrrh is something that hangs on your bathroom wall. <laughs> but whatever... That is, is, we sometimes get confused with all of this stuff and it's quite easy 
to get lost in it all if we're not careful and we can miss the whole point. So this morning I've called this message Christmas, the director's cut. And if you don't know what a director's cut is, a director's cut is a version of the movie, a particular movie, that the director himself really wanted you to see. It's the version that he had in his mind before other people interfere with it and start to chop it up and take different scenes out of it, maybe some of his favorite scenes. And I believe that uh, even though we might be slightly confused and perplexed by all of the various things surrounding Christmas, that God isn't the slightest bit confused. Uh, Christmas has always made sense to him. It was his idea in the first place. He masterminded it. And so we're going to ask the question this morning, what is Christmas from God's perspective? And in order to answer that question, I'm going to go to one of the Gospels we don't normally go to, uh, to read the Christmas story. It's the Gospel of John. Paul's already quoted some of it this morning. In John's version of the Christmas story, there are no censuses, there are no shepherds, there are no sheep, there are no wise men, there are no stars. And the reason for that, I believe, is that John's story, his Christmas story, is the story from not a historic perspective, but from a strategic perspective. It's a movie, as it were, uh, seen not from the actor's standpoint, but from the director's standpoint. And just like in every director's cut of a movie, there are certain scenes that the director really wants you to see. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at three scenes of the Christmas story that I think God really wants us to see from his perspective, and that's why he's included it in John's Gospel, chapter one, which we're about to read. Uh, I'll pray again, since I've told my joke, I feel like I need to repent and pray, and uh, then we'll get into the word of God. God, I just agree with Paul's prayer that, uh, Lord, we would be changed by your word. Thank you for it. Well, thank you for the profound words we're about to read. I just pray they would echo in our hearts, and I pray that, Lord, we would be just impressed this morning with something of what Christmas means from heaven's perspective. Change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or the husband's will, but born of God. 
the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of one of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Wow. Man, we could spend all Christmas meditating on those verses. But we're not going to do that this morning. I'm aware we've got carols by candlelight this afternoon. I'm going to be briefer, I promise, than I sometimes am. And we're going to look just at three scenes uh, that I think are highlighted in this Christmas story. The first scene is the Christmas lights scene. The second scene is the family reunion scene. And the third scene is the epic journey scene. So I hope that's not all too cryptic. Hopefully it will all make sense as we go through. So here's the first scene, the Christmas lights scene. Maybe some, how many of you like Christmas lights? How many of you, your houses or somebody, Emily Adams, shot up her hand. Maybe your house looks a bit like this one. This is a, a guy, a guy from Wiltshire, a place called Melksham, never, Melksham, never heard of it in my life. But this guy, Alex Goodhand, is a, an electrician. Uh, he thought it would be pretty cool to do this. It cost him a grand total of 30,000 pounds to put up this display. And he reckons it will cost him about a thousand pounds per month on electricity just to run it. But, um, and some of you may think, well, that is just plain over the top. Some of you are like, wow, I want the hu- that house. I want that display. Uh, but I think for the vast majority of us probably would have to admit that there is, something, uh, there is something appealing, even if not on this scale. There's something appealing about fairy lights. There's something appealing about candles or lanterns on a, on a cold winter dark night. Why do we love them? Well, there's just something inherently comforting and something almost magical about the flicker of candlelight or the little twinkling of fairy lights in the cold and in the darkness. Light shining in the darkness. If ever there was a great Christmas theme, that's one right there. And we read it in John's Gospel, verses four to seven. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone. Say everyone was coming into the world. What John is saying here is that Christmas is about light. And it's not fairy lights or candlelight or starlight or any other secondary kind of light, but it's about one specific true light who we're told is Jesus Christ himself. So the message of Christmas is that Jesus came to be light into a dark world. The Christmas message is about his light breaking into the darkness of humanity in in the form of a little baby born in Bethlehem. And in the Gospel of John, the book we've been reading, this light theme crops up 21 times in the whole book of John. It's a big theme in his Gospel. It's a big theme in the New Testament. And you may even have noticed there was a subtle inference in the first verse 
right back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis, the first three words of his gospel are the same three words that we find right at the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning. And just as the word of God brought light into the chaos of a semi-created world in Genesis, so Jesus, also called the word, brings light into the chaos and the darkness of fallen humanity. That's the message of Christmas. And I want to just draw your attention to three things quickly concerning light. Firstly, light attracts. Secondly, light repels, seemingly contradictory. And thirdly, the darkness cannot extinguish light. First one, light attracts. Light attracts some. And for some people, there is something inherently attractive about light. If you put a a candle in a dark room and you send a child in, don't recommend it. It's only a matter of seconds before that child gravitates toward that light and probably sets fire to your living room. I can remember uh, a couple of years ago in the previous flat that we lived in, we didn't have an extract fan in the bathroom. So very often after I had a shower, I would open the window. On one particular night in the middle of summer, uh, I did exactly that. I've been doing that uh, habitually. Uh, But this particular night, I forgot to turn off the light and I left the window open all night. I closed the bathroom door. And in the morning, when I walked into the bathroom, man, it was like creepy crawlies everywhere. There were all manner of bugs and spiders and insects and moths and beetles and dragonflies and all kinds of stuff. It was like... The Bush Tucker trial, man, it was absolutely nuts. It was horrible. And the the truth is that if we put light in a dark place, you're going to find that it is attractive to certain people. And maybe some of you, spiritually speaking, can identify with that. Uh, Maybe you are here today because there was something about a particular individual, maybe you couldn't put your finger on it, but you knew there's something about that person that I just need to find out more about. Maybe it's a group of people and you know every time you hang around them that, man, there's something about that group of people that I just need to know about. And I've got to tell you folks that that thing you're describing there is simply the light of Jesus shining through those people. It's nothing in particular special about them. I'm sure they're lovely people. But what is special is the light of Jesus shining through them. Maybe you're here today and you've got that same sense of drawing. There's a pull in your heart. There's an almost irresistible desire to find out more about this character, Jesus Christ. Maybe it's, it's flying in the face of all of your logic and all of your reason and all of your arguments, but you can't deny that in your heart there's a draw. Well, I've got to tell you folks this morning, that draw is the light of Christ that you're attracted to. And that is the message of Christmas, that he came to be light in a dark world. If you're a Christian this morning, the truth is you have the light of Christ inside of you. You have the light of Christ inside of you. And my encouragement to you this morning is don't hold it back. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't suppress it. Let it shine. Turn to your neighbor and say, let it shine. You can sing it to them. I think that's a 
There's a, that's a horrible song that, that reminds me of that. But anyway, uh, take that or something. Yeah. Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. This is what Jesus said. He said, you are the light of the world. Isn't that interesting? You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We've got to shine. Okay, so the first thing about light is this, that light attracts. The second thing about light is that light repels. So light attracts some, it repels others. Verse 11 tells us that. He came to that which was his own, that's the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. Not everyone you see is attracted to light. In fact, for some people, it's the one thing that they cannot tolerate. I don't know if you grew up uh, or maybe you live currently in a house with mice, mice, mice. Anyone got mice in their house? Anyone got a mouse problem? Oh, you're all so naive. You live in Edinburgh and you don't think you've got mice in your house. <laughs> They're all waiting. They come at it out at night and you know not. But anyway, um, I'll let you all live in the dream that you don't have mice in your house. But anyway, probably you've all had this experience or some of you will have the experience. Or if you grew up in a hot country, you've, you've had cockroaches. Anyone had cockroaches in their house? Okay, wow. Lots of cockroaches and you know what happens, you walk into a dark room, maybe your kitchen, you flick the light on and all you see is these things scatter. And uh, sometimes that's just what happens when the light gets turned on. Certain things and certain people just cannot tolerate the, the light. And I'm not saying that certain people are cockroaches, don't misunderstand me. Uh, but I am, what I am saying is that certain folks, when they're confronted with light, they just can't abide it. And Jesus gives an explanation for this. He says it in John 3, verses 19 and 20. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You see, light exposes all of the mess and the rottenness of the human heart. Flaws and ugliness that the darkness disguised are exposed when the light shines. Myself and Mark uh, Johnson were sitting at the table right at the back but by the shutter earlier in the week eating our lunch. And previous to us sitting there, the shutter had been down because the guys were doing some work on the, on the shutter. And uh, we thought, well, we want some daylight in here. So we opened the shutter and the first thing that Anne Williams said, she does a lot of the cleaning and the housekeeping, when she came in to the cafe was, well, what a mess. Because what she previously couldn't see because of the darkness was exposed because of the light. There was crumbs everywhere. The tables were all sticky. And it was brought to light because of this light. And there are two types of people in the world. The type, first type of person is the type of person who are grateful when the light shines on their life. They're grateful because they so desperately want to get help with the mess that their life is in. That's one kind of person. The other kind of people are those who are terrified of the light because actually they love their sin and they love the darkness. 
and they just want to be left alone in their darkness. So which type are you? Which type are you? Happy Christmas. <laughs> light attracts some and light repels others. Third thing about light, I love this, darkness cannot extinguish it. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. One of the most powerful things about life is light is the sheer impossibility of ever being extinguished by the darkness. No matter how much darkness there is, the darkness has absolutely no power over the light. You can light a little candle in a dark room and no matter how small that little light is, no matter how small it is in comparison to the amount of the volume of darkness in that room, the darkness simply has no power over that light. It has to flee. It has no other choice. Darkness is powerless over light. King Herod tried to snuff out the light of Christ while he was a baby before he left the cradle. The Jewish people, the religious Jews, tried to extinguish his light by hanging him on a cross. And the devil has been trying ever since to invent all kinds of ways to try and extinguish the light of Christ shining through his people all over planet Earth. But the good news is the darkness has not overcome it and the darkness never will. We said it a few weeks ago that we serve a savior Jesus who is unstoppable. And his light that first shone at Christmas will never be extinguished. So that's the Christmas lights scene. And I wanna encourage you this Christmas when every time you flick the little switch on that turns your Christmas lights on or every time you light those candles or light those little lanterns or whatever it is you do, strike a match. I want you to remember that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, that he has come into the world, he has come into your darkness and that he's lit up your life. And I also want you to remember, try and not get distracted like I totally am on that ringtone. Uh, what was I saying? I want you to also remember, I totally have forgotten what I was saying now. <laughs> I want you to also remember that Christ, Jesus Christ has said that you are the light of the world. And I want you to remember when you strike that match or flick that switch on, that Jesus Christ is calling you to be the light of the world this Christmas. Let it shine. Talk to your friends, talk to your family about this hope you have at Christmas because of Jesus Christ. So that's the Christmas light scene. The second scene in this, this director's cut movie is what I've called the family reunion scene. The family reunion scene. If you were to ask the average person walking down the street what Christmas meant to them, uh, one of the most common answers they would inevitably give you is that Christmas is about family. Family and Christmas seem to go hand in hand. Maybe some of you, if you're married, had an argument relatively recently about do we go to your family's house for Christmas or do we go to mine? That's one of the big dilemmas uh, when you get married. Should it be an extended family affair or should it just be the close family, the, uh, the immediate family? Do we invite that slightly creepy uncle? Do we, 
do we, I know he's, I know he's a relative, but you know, he always puts his foot in, he always makes people feel uncomfortable. Do we invite him? I suppose we'll have to. All of these kinds of complicated things happen around Christmas, and they're all to do with family. Whether we like it or not, family and Christmas are joined at the hip. Uh, there was a couple driving down the road to their Christmas dinner with their family, and they'd had a massive argument and they, they were not talking to each other. They were giving each other the cold shoulder type thing. And uh, they were driving past this farm. And in the farm are all kinds of mules and donkeys and cows and pigs and goats. And the husband turns to his wife and he says, relatives of yours? And the wife says, without missing a beat, yep, in-laws. Families are, are funny things. And Christmas and, and family are, as it were, joined at the hip. For some of you this Christmas, uh, Christmas is going to be hard because you've lost a family member this year. So whatever your situation, uh, it is likely that family, the reality of it or the longing for it or the lack of it, uh, will be a big part and a big feature of your Christmas. So what about Christmas from God's perspective? To continue the analogy, uh, what did the director intend? Well, I think it's clear from this passage that family reunions at Christmas are not just something that are close to human hearts, uh, but they're something that were, before, were conceived in the heart of God before the creation of the world. Let me show you what I mean. Verses 12 and 13. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Say children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The whole purpose of Christmas, the whole reason for the virgin birth and the very destiny of the baby in the manger was to be an agent of reconciliation between a rebellious bunch of kids and a father who refused to give up on them. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God, not just friends, not associates, not just citizens of a kingdom. Children of God, that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. One of the most powerful. And it's true that in one sense that every person on the planet is a child of God. It says in Acts 17 verse 28, for indeed we are his offspring. And that was Paul talking to Greek people, Greek people who did not know God. But if we haven't received Jesus, if we haven't believed in his name, then we are only God's children insofar as he created us. We are, as it were, his biological children, and he is our biological father. But you, both you and I know that it's possible to have a biological father without having a relationship with that father. Maybe some of you have been estranged from your biological father. But if, if that's true of you spiritually, uh, that is, you're not in a relationship with your heavenly father, the great news is 
that one of the key scenes in this Christmas story is that that baby in a manger grew up to be a man who died in your place so that you could come into a living relationship with your father. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Christmas is about family reunions. And so when you, when you meet and greet your loved ones this Christmas, whether it's the, the hug and probably in Paul's family, the kiss on, how many kisses do you give? Two. I know in certain parts of France it's three and four and you never, I never know when I meet my French auntie, how many is it this time? Anyway, whether you're, you know, whether you're a hugger or a kind of awkward man slapper or whatever it is that you do when you greet your loved ones, your brother, your sister, your mom or your dad, when you do that, I want you to call to your memory that Jesus Christ has done the most beautiful and the most profound thing in going to the cross because he has allowed you and your heavenly father who were previously estranged to have a wonderful reunion. So try and keep that in your minds when you greet family, when you hug them, when you kiss them, when you meet them. Just try and bring into your mind, okay, well, this is amazing, but there's an even more amazing reality. And it's that I know and I'm in relationship with my heavenly father because of what Christ did and it all started at Christmas. So that's the family reunion scene. And thirdly and lastly, I wanna talk to you about the epic journey scene. The epic journey scene. How many of you are traveling this Christmas? You're going somewhere on a plane or a train or a boat or a car? Quite a lot of you. Uh, last Christmas, I was preaching at the Christmas breakfast in, in Edinburgh and Gorgie. And then we drove across to Glasgow to be with my brother and my family. But technically, it was our year to be with Katrina's dad, who's up in Inverness. So we decided, wouldn't it be a great idea to go from Edinburgh to Glasgow to Inverness all on Christmas Day? Don't do it. <laughs> uh, don't do it. But we did. It was an epic journey. Some of you are thinking, that's nothing. I got I to get on a plane for 24 hours to get to, to my family. I know Anita and Brenton, wherever you are, I think they're on a plane on Christmas Day to Australia this year. Happy Christmas, guys. Enjoy. Um, so Christmas is often a time of, of epic journeys. Uh, but the passage we were looking at today draws our attention to the most epic journey the world has ever known. And it describes it so succinctly that if we're not careful, we could completely miss it. Paul mentioned it earlier, verse 14. The words became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's one of the most profound and one of the most significant statements you will ever hear. Who was the word? Verse one tells us, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was God. So we combine those two thoughts from verse 14 and verse one and what we get is that God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God left his throne, 
became one of us, walked in our shoes, breathed our air, experienced our hurts, faced the temptations that we face. He left all of the splendor and all of the glory and all of the security of heaven and he exchanged it for poverty and vulnerability and an animal's feeding trough as his first bed. It's the most incredible thing. You've probably heard of Bill Gates, you heard of him? Still allegedly the the world's wealthiest man, estimated net worth of 79.2 billion dollars, not million, 79.2 billion dollars. Can you imagine one man being worth that amount of money? Here's some facts about Bill Gates' house. So he has a big house in Medina, I think it's near Seattle somewhere. He has a swimming pool that's 18 meters long and it has an underwater music system. Uh, It has a locker room with four showers and two baths. Of course it does. He has a dining room which is 92 square meters in size. My three bedroom terrace house in Curry is only 89 meters square over two floors. His dining room is bigger than my entire house. When a guest arrives, they're given a pin that interacts with sensors in each room of the house and depending on their preferences, the temperature, the lighting and the music all change wherever they go. Can you imagine that? It all changes, the atmosphere changes as you walk through the house. There are 84 steps down from from the entrance of the house to the ground floor, 84 steps. But of course, if you're lazy, you can just take the lift. There's a lift in his house. Uh, It's got 24 bathrooms including 10 baths, and the house comes with a 23-car garage. Now, this is Bill Gates' house. Hopefully, the video will come up now. I've got a picture. This is, can you dim the lights, guys? Is that possible? Oh, he's, he's moved. He's on a plane, and he's coming to see you right here. A bit further, guys. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Stop. Well done. Brilliant. And he's, he's moving in to that flat right there. It's a grotty little damp one-bedroom apartment with mice and cockroaches. Can you imagine? He's not, actually. <laughs> but can you imagine if he did? He voluntarily gave up his 24 bathroom house and decided I'm going to give all of that away. I'm going to move to Gorgie to be with those people in Destiny Church. Now, I don't know if you can imagine that, but even if you could, that doesn't even come close to describing the kind of journey that Jesus made for us. What was the result of Jesus' epic journey? Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. What that verse is telling us amongst other things is that whatever you go through in life, whatever pain you feel, whatever disappointment you experience, whatever betrayal you face and whatever temptation hounds you, 
there is no better person to go to than the one who's been through it all and the one who's beaten it all. His name is Jesus Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you face in life. He cares what you're going through and he wants to walk with you through it all. That's one of the key messages, one of the key scenes of Christmas. So when you get on that plane this Christmas or when you jump on the train or jump in your car to travel to wherever it is you're going or even if you walk there, whenever you leave the, leave the house, I want you to remember that no matter how epic, no matter how inconvenient your journey may be, no one has ever journeyed further and no one has ever given up so much and no one has ever made a greater sacrifice than the one who left heaven to walk in our shoes. I'll close with this quote from John MacArthur. He said this, he said, the child born in Bethlehem is none other than the living God come to declare himself to us. In Jesus Christ, the unknowable becomes knowable. The invisible becomes visible. The transcendent becomes intimate. The untouchable becomes touchable. The unsearchable becomes embraceable. And God is never again a stranger to a believing heart. Let's pray. Just take a moment in his presence to just uh, really focus your heart and your mind and your attention on what Christ has actually done for you. He's come to be light in this dark world. He's come to bring light into your situation. He's come to bring a, you back into intimate relationship with your father to reunite you with your father. And he came at Christmas time amongst other things so that he would have firsthand experience of what it's like to live as you. So that whenever you need his help, you can go to a God who's been there, done that, and overcome it all. Just take a moment to respond to, to all of those things this morning, whichever one feels most appropriate for your situation. It's possible, though, that you are here today. I know there may be some visitors who came on Thursday. It's possible you're here today and, and you're saying, Graham, you know what? You talked about having a relationship with my father. And at the moment, I feel estranged from God. I'm not connected with God. I, I know he's there. I, I can even maybe admit that he made me, he created me, but I don't have a relationship with that father. And you want to. Well, the whole purpose of Christmas, as I said, is that Jesus became a mediator, an agent to, to buy back the ability 
for you to come into relationship with God. And so if you're here today and you're saying, Graham, I want to come into that relationship, you need to go to Jesus Christ, to all who received him, to them that believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. You need to receive Jesus and believe in his name this morning. So if you're here today and you want to do that, you want to cross a line into relationship with God, then pray this prayer after me. Pray it just between you, you and God. You don't need to pray it out loud. Pray, Jesus, thank you so much you came at Christmas. Thank you you came to restore me to relationship with my Father. I believe in you. I believe in your death and in your resurrection. I recognize that I am a sinner and I turn away from all of the mess and the darkness in my life. I give my life to you this morning. I thank you for hearing my prayer. Would you do me a favor and if you prayed that prayer this morning, do me a favor and just be really brave and just slip your hand in the air so that I know that someone here prayed that prayer. We'd love to help you. We'd love to pray with you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you at the back as well. Thank you. Anyone else at all in the room today? You know, you prayed that prayer. Okay, well, God, thank you so much for these two people that I've seen and others who maybe I didn't see, God. I pray that, Lord, you would reveal yourself to them. I pray you'd become alive and real to them in their hearts this Christmas. I pray they'd be more aware of you than they ever have before. And may this be the start of an amazing, amazing journey for them. And everybody said, amen.